I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its enslavement to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together as it suffers together with the pains of labor. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is, not, that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what one has already seized? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with, for it with patience. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. I hope you're doing well. Uh, we're in Romans 8 for a, a short series. And, and I hope that you've been reading the text uh, this week. My name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here at Highland. Um, but I want to encourage you, pull out uh, your Bible if you have it with you today or your app and open up Romans 8 and take a look at what we see together. Um, we've been, uh, this week I, I, I struggled to try to find a narrative thread for us to understand what suffering means in the real world. Praise be to God for Diane Cope and the words she shares. This week I, I struggled and I, and I wrestled to find the words that would express what does hope look like, what does peace look like in the midst of chaos and storm. Praise be to God for it is well with my soul. Song written a hundred years ago or more. It speaks of the truth of the gospel. And I hoped for, to find the balance between what is a life lived out, a life in the spirit lived out looked like when we're constantly striving for, for the more of what God's presence means in our life, yet still resting in the peace that God offers us, praise be to God, for that announcement. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is being preached over and over and over and over right now. And if you have ears to hear, you're going to hear it. And so let's, let's open our hearts and let's open our minds. Let's take a minute to hear what God, through ancient writings, might have to say to you about the nature of your own life, what, what you're enduring, the weight that feels like a burden, the pain that exists in your body. Let's, let's brothers and sisters, let's hear what God has to say. Pray with me, please. Father, we are grateful for this time. We're grateful for these people. We are grateful for the confession of faith that we made some very recently and some long ago that your son is Lord. And because Christ is Lord, we are being transformed. We are passing from one place to another as we, as we journey together through a dark veil. Father, I pray that you will be with us now that your spirit will indwell us and that you will pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. It's together that the church says, amen. So last, two weeks ago, we began this series, and if you haven't been able, this is your first week, you can go check those out online or, or try to catch up, but all you really have to do is read Romans chapter 8. 
And I want to kind of bring you to where we are today in this argument that Paul is trying to lay out. He begins by saying basically like, sin is our only hope. Sin is the only way that we are going to know how to turn and trust God. Because if we don't have the name for what's happening in our world, if we don't have a name called sin, then we can't understand what happens. Sin feels like the missing of the mark. It's when you try to to take a shot, but you miss and you just can't hit it. But what sin actually is, is the breaking of relationships. In the Garden of Eden, what happens is not so much that that Adam and Eve, they disobey or they, they miss perfection of what God intended for them, is that they break relationship with God. And nothing they can do can fix that. Nothing they can do can mend that. Every action that they take in the series that follows, the stories that follow this, is, is human beings making it worse despite their best attempt. But because we have the name sin, because we can identify what it is that's breaking everything around us, destroying the relationships, corrupting our world, we turn to Jesus. And last week we realized that the way that we've been lost and abandoned and broken is not the end of the story. Because you and I, we've been adopted. We've been adopted to be, to be sons and daughters of God. Adopted to be princes and princesses. As we stand next to our big brother Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, And there's two roads. There's two paths. There's two places that you're going to end up going. And one of them leads you to a road of enslavement to sin and fear. The other to kinship with God. And kinship with God allows you to call God the Father Abba. It's an intimate term. It's It's daddy. What I do know about that term is that slaves aren't allowed to use it in the household. Only the sons and daughters of the king. But at the end of that, <coughs> at the end of that text, Paul says a hint, just a glimmer. It's something on the horizon. He says that you are still sons and daughters of the king, but there's still going to be suffering. There's still going to be hard times and hard events and hard moments and difficult relationships and unforeseen tragedy. It's, you're going to suffer. And so today, as we, as we turn to 18 and following, Paul's going to deal with that directly. But know that suffering isn't the only part of that story. Suffering and hope are like breath. And, and hope and groaning have the same breath that we breathe out groaning and we breathe in hope. At least that's what happens in the promise of God. It's, it's difficult to not admit that the world we live in right now is it's pretty amazing. You can imagine, imagine yourself for a moment, the living in the time of Pharaoh. Except you're not a slave, you're Pharaoh. Or you could fast forward and and imagine yourself living in the time of Rome, except you're not a young Christian, you're the emperor. Or even kings and queens that lived, you know, 500, 400, even as much as 200 years ago. If you were one of the most powerful people in the world in those ages, research tells us that the average person that lives in America or even like the West lives better than those kings. 
even up to like 150, 175 years ago. You live better than Pharaoh. Well, what do you mean? If Pharaoh had appendicitis, he died. Right? If, 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 if the emperor of Rome suddenly had a heart attack, he dies. There's no recourse. You, you died. Medicine now is so much better than what would kill a king not less than 150 years ago. It's now just like an inconvenience for you. It might just be a pill that you have to take every day or a minor surgery that doesn't even lay you up in the hospital. You're going to be fine. The variety of food that you eat right now, the fact that you can walk into H-E-B and buy a mango is better than what George Washington, the President of the United States, had access to. The variety of food that you can eat, you eat more protein on average a week than the Pharaoh of Egypt did. You have better access to food, better access to medicine. And here's the last thing. The average house in America is run on electricity whether that's solar or, or gas or something else, it's, it's run on power. And you can imagine if you didn't have that power and the technology you had to use to run your house was a bicycle, like basically a bicycle that you sat on and pedaled, it was connected to a generator and that would generate enough energy, right? Imagine if you had to run your house on a bicycle. How many hours a day do you think you would have to pedal to power your house? By the way, in your house you have AC, which Queen Elizabeth had no access to. When it got hot in the summer, she suffered along with every other person in, that, in, the, in the continent, right? It was just, that's the way it was. How many bicycles, how many hours a day do you think you'd have to ride to power your house? Two hours? Four hours? The truth is you would have to ride your bicycle for eight hours a day, a full-time job, plus you would need 39 others of your friends. Your house is run on the equivalent of 40 servants worth of power a day. And technology is amazing. Information, you have the entire world's access uh, literally in your hand, the palm of your hand. Most of us do. You have more access to information than any scholar that, that ever lived. And we live in a hopeful future as well. Researchers think that the, the cure, the, the vaccine for HIV is less than 10 years away. Researchers are finding advances in immunotherapy for cancers that are going to fundamentally change the face of cancer. 15 years ago, if you, had, if you contracted cancer, if you developed cancer, it was a death sentence, and that is no longer the case. People are surviving for years. There are future power options, some that are even being uh, researched right now in our own city, that are going to change the face of the world. Things are amazing. You might have your retirement all settled. I had a friend that worked at Google when I was in California, and he was slightly younger than I was, but he had already saved up enough money to secure his retirement, and he was trying to figure out at like 43, am I going to retire at 45, 47, or 49? And I was like, man, that's, that's, that's a real terrible question. I'm, I'm so sorry that you have to wrestle with that. You know, that's all. That sounds awful. He's like, yeah, you know, I might work two more years to, to pay for my house and pay that all the way off. Maybe three more to pay for all of my kids' college education. It's like, man, that, that sounds horrible. That's awful. You might be in that place where you have a great place to live and you have your retirement secured and all of those things may be locked in. But you cannot deny, even if you have everything, 
that suffering still exists. And it, it may not be happening right now, but you can't avoid it. And so how does Paul want to make sense of this truth that, that suffering is going to happen? It is this inevitable experience. And, and one of the questions we might ask is, what kind of suffering is Paul talking about? Is this what he's talking about, kind of that, that general suffering of life, that eventually arthritis is going to take your knees and eye, your eyesight's going to fail? Is it the suffering of being at the bottom? Is it the most of the people that he was writing to in the churches in Rome were, were slaves or they were women? They were on the bottom of the social ladder. And so he's trying to help them cope with how they're living. Is it the suffering of the Roman oppression and persecution? Uh, the Roman uh, mayor, the, the leaders of Rome, kicked out all the Jews out of the city. And now they're coming back. And that's part of why Paul's writing this book to help these two groups figure out how to live together. Is he, is he talking about Roman persecution? Or is it the suffering that occurs kind of in the transition of the ages? Is it this first century church has one foot in the past and another foot in this new kingdom, this new future that's arising, and there's a, a great amount of shear that happens in between those two times? And Paul never quite says. He never quite defines what it might be. But what Paul wants them to know, <laughs> excuse me, what Paul wants them to know is that whatever it is that they're experiencing now, and no matter what that suffering is, it does not compare to the glory that awaits us. Now, glory was a big deal in the Roman Empire. It's a big deal in our world. And glory is sometimes difficult to define, so I wanna, I wanna name it for us, that in the Roman Empire, glory is, is, is fame or renown. It's the way it feels when you walk into a room and strangers know who you are even though you don't know their name. It's the power to do things just by kind of fiat, just by wishing things that would happen and you kind of say it and someone's able to do it for you. They execute it for you. It's that kind of power that's, that's desirable in the first century. It's that kind of power that we look for now. The way that Social media influencers can change industries just because they're, they're known. But, but the Jewish, the Hebrew understanding of glory is very different. And Paul wants to dip into that resource and that well of understanding to, to, when, he, when he talks about glory. It's not the glory of being known or having achieved a feat when I worked in California, I had a, a man that went to my church and he gave me his card. He worked at Apple and he gave me this card and it had, all it had on it was his name. It didn't have his position in the company. Now he'd worked there for many, many years. It didn't have his position on the company. All it had was his name and his email address. And his email address, now some of you nerds are gonna be really wowed at this and other people are gonna be like, what? Trust me, this is a big deal. His email address was K at apple.com. Now, if you're a geek, you're like, whoa. And the reason that's like, whoa, is because there's only 26 letters in the alphabet, right? There's only 25 other people in the world that could have a one letter at apple.com. In fact, he was the only person in the world to have that one letter email address because he wrote the script for their email protocol 25 years ago. 
And he wrote this special little line into the code that allowed him to have that email address. How awesome is that? He also wrote the algorithm that keeps your iPhone from exploding in your pocket. Sometimes it feels hot. He keeps it from burning a hole in your pants. So, you know, thank Keith for that. Thank, you could write K at Apple dot, don't do that. Um, uh, but he was like, he was, he was a member, and so I went to lunch with him one day, and I walked through those halls of Apple with him going to the uh, cafeteria, and you could tell. Everybody knew who that dude was. Everybody knew who he was. That's not Hebrew renown. It's not for how important you are or how rich you are or what you've done in the past. Glory in the Old Testament belongs solely and only to God. But the glory of God is so immense, so powerful, so overwhelming, that it bounces, it flows out of the throne room of God, and it lands on the earth, and it lands on you. You are never responsible for your glory when you live inside God's kingdom. You are never responsible for your glory when you function inside of God's economy because it is flowing from the throne and it bounces off of you and it affects other things. It splatters against other people and against creation itself. Glory was a big deal in the Roman Empire, but glory does not come from your achievement or not from the crowds or not from the adoration. It comes from God. And what Paul wants to make clear is that glory is not compensation for suffering. It's not what you get for suffering. It's not payment. Glory is not the wages that you receive for having to endure hard things. But it does begin to point to the answers to the questions that suffering raises. And it is the embodiment of the restoration, the redemption that God does in your life. But glory in Romans chapter 8 is, is not just for the sons and daughters of God. It's not just for you and I, but it's for everything that suffers. In, in, in verse 21, Paul says, In hope that creation itself will be set free from its enslavement to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And in this text, you see exactly what I'm saying. It will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation itself, the cosmos itself, is hoping to be splattered with the offput of the glory that is falling from the throne of heaven onto you so that it can be set free from the enslavement to decay. And this is true in every level that you can imagine, the enslavement to decay. The world, the universe is winding down, right? Physicists would tell you this, that the, the vibration of atoms and molecules is, is creating more energy, is, is consuming more energy than it can fill back into the cosmos. Slowly and surely, the, the, the cosmos, the universe, is moving towards entropy. It's going to be the, the heat death of the universe when basically the vibration of every molecule begins to cease and stops. Everything is going to end. Now, that's billions of years away, but we know it's going to happen. And we know it's going to happen because it's not only true in our universe, it's true in our lives. Like, there's some place in heaven where there is a clock, a, a counter, and it's ticking down. And the title of that counter is the number of hairs on Shane's head, right? Eventually that number's gonna hit zero, probably sooner than I'd like, but it's happening, right? There is another counter just below that counter that says the number of heartbeats left in Shane's body. 
Your, the heart as an organ is an imperfect machine. It cannot beat forever. And at one point, it will stop beating. My friend David that preaches over at Heavenly Rest, he, he did a funeral recently for his um, grandmother-in-law. And she lived to be this very old age, this wonderful life, very, very a great experience, a peaceful death. But he figured it out and she said, he said, you know, she only had about 36,000 days. And she lived a long time. And 36,000 days just... It really doesn't sound like that many, does it? We know that the universe is winding down, that is enslavement to decay, because our lives are winding down. Paul says the whole world is groaning. The whole world is suffering. Now, that, that word appears several times in Romans chapter 8. It shows up in a couple other places in Scripture. And there's kind of two definitions of that word to understand it. The one that's clear in Romans is that there's the groanings of labor pains. The groaning that a, that a mother makes as a baby is being born. And if you've been through any moment of, of, of experiencing birth, you know that there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's some pitches to the groaning. There's high groaning. And then there's low groaning. When the groaning goes low, that means the action's about to start. If you've never had a baby before, you're, you're a man, you're going to plan to be in the birth, just know when that groaning drops, this, it's time for action. Here it comes. Baby's about to be there. It goes from, to, that was me. That wasn't my wife. Right? That's what it sounds like. And the reality is for, for Paul's audience in Rome, labor is a very dangerous time for women. Labor is, is about as close to risking death as you might come as a, a woman because it's a very risky enterprise. The other place that that word shows up in, in Greek literature is at the end of a battle, a, a big battle scene where the soldiers have been fighting and there's, there's wounded soldiers all over the ground. And what you heard were the groanings. It was soldiers who had been mortally wounded who were bleeding out of their bodies and they were groaning, hoping that someone would come and help them. Hoping that someone would take them to, to bind their wounds or to take them off of the battlefield. And Paul says, creation is suffering. Creation is enduring. Creation is groaning as if it is about to die or something is about to be born. And I love the way Mike said this. He said, it it's, it's, isn't hard to see the groaning of the earth and know that this is true, that hurricanes that wipe out coastlines aren't from God, and earthquakes that shatter homes and lives aren't from God, and the diseases and the cancers that kill children and middle-aged people and old people that aren't from God. The earth is groaning, longing to be redeemed. The earth groans. And Jesus groans. Jesus, in the book of Mark, there's a story where uh, he encounters someone who is a, d a deaf mute. And the text says that as he's um, speaking and encountering this person, that he looks up to heaven and he groans. Now, most of your Bibles, that's translated sigh. And in fact, some of your Bibles may translate groan to sigh, even in Romans chapter 8. It says Jesus sighs and looks to heaven. But it's the same word. Jesus groans in empathy, seeing the suffering of someone else. Jesus is filled with empathy. And he looks up to heaven and he groans. 
So the cosmos is groaning, and Jesus has this groan, and, and we are suffering. You can avoid suffering for a little while, maybe even into your early 30s, but eventually suffering is inevitable, and you can't stop it. You can't be clever enough to trick it, and you can't outrun it, and you can't be nimble enough to avoid it. All you can do is eventually endure it and maybe just numb yourself to it. You cannot avoid suffering. You need resources to endure it. Those resources come with Jesus. Paul says, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the groaning of our world, we pray. We pray, and we don't know what we need. We don't know what to pray for, but we call out to God. We call out to the only one that we think can provide us relief or meaning or endurance in this time. And God says, Paul says that the Spirit translates our prayers with groans. The longing redemption of being redeemed. And you know, it's, it's some of those prayers, they don't get answered. And I think sometimes that's a mercy. Uh, Tim Keller tells a story about a time when he was a, a young person, he was single, and he was, had been dating this, this girl, and um, she was about to break up with him, and he didn't want that to happen because he saw the future with this woman. He saw the potential of like their life together, and, and they were going to do ministry together, and they were going to be happy together, and they were going to be in New York together, and, and he was crying out to God. Crying out to God, say, this is not the path that you've chosen us to be, and it hurts that I've formed this relationship, and it's about to break. Would you please make this work out for me? Would you please intercede to make this woman not want to leave me? And he says, she did. And it was the best thing that ever happened to him. I wonder what it means to have a God that doesn't answer your prayer, but answers the best case that your prayer could have been. Does that make sense? I wonder what it means to follow a God who doesn't give you everything you want, but gives you, if you are wise enough and smart enough and, and emotionally mature enough to ask for the right thing in that situation, that's what God gives you. I think that's what this text is saying, that in the midst of suffering, it's difficult to know what to say to God and how to pray to God and what even to ask for. Is it, do I need the strength to endure this? Do I need the wisdom to overcome this? Do I need someone just to move this mountain out of my way so I can have peace? You could pray for a million different things in the midst of suffering. What a blessing is it to have a God that takes all of those misfired directions and desires and tunes them to the heart of God. Because the Spirit with groans translates our prayers and takes them to the throne of God. The world groans and we groan. Jesus groaned and God groans for us. All of it aimed to the same thing, waiting for new birth to be revealed, waiting for that new moment. I know it's awkward to tell birth stories in public especially to a captive audience, but here we go. 
there was this moment, um, you know, I told you about that groan change, right? Natalie and I are driving to the hospital or the birth center, and we're headed on Ambler to get there, and um, we, were, we, had, we had taken our van, and halfway through the moment of getting from the house to the birth center, Natalie unbuckles her seatbelt and goes to the back seat, which is a bad sign. We waited too long. We should have moved faster. I'm telling you that right now. And there's this dog that's in the road. And so I've got to pause and wait for the dog. Now, I was taking my wife to deliver our last child. I would have hit that dog. I'm not lying to you. I was not willing to hit the two or three cars and the policeman that was in front of me with that dog. And so I pause, and she says, what's going on? I said, there's a dog in the road. She said, hit it. She didn't, she didn't say that. Um, but it was, it was right at that moment where the tenor, the pitch of her groan went from I'm in pain to something, something's about to happen. Something's about to change. And the cosmos, the cosmos is groaning for change, waiting, suffering, enduring, for the reconciliation of you and I to God. For the redemption, not only of our souls, but of our bodies. That somehow the glory that pours from the throne room of God the Father would hit us and splatter on us to the world. And this is why we hope that there is going to be a glory that comes over us it will be so powerful it will change the rest of the universe as well redeemed bodies and redeemed spirits all wrapped up into one moment and so remember that your glory is not glory is not the compensation your compensation for suffering but it will redeem the questions that your suffering raises heaven is not the consolation prize heaven is not the reward in fact, I think you can land in heaven, and if you haven't endured, experienced the transformation of suffering, it's not going to mean very much to you. What is, what is the reward? What is the consolation prize? What is the promise that God offers you is that it is resurrection. It is restoration. That one day we're going to know what those three words mean. And one day we're going to know why your father died. One day you're going to know why she said no and walked away. Hope and groaning have the same breath. And we who live in expectation of what's coming, of the, of the big new thing that's coming, we breathe out our groaning and we breathe in hope in the same breath. So what if we had a God? What if we had a God who heard our groans and acted on them? What if we had a God who lay dying on a battlefield begging for relief that did not come? What if we had a God who hears the translation of our groans and offers us the thing that we really need, not the thing that we think we want? The heart of the gospel tells us that through Jesus Christ, we do. We have that God. 
And that God loves you. And maybe the simplest promise of the gospel is that no matter where you're at, no matter how much it hurts, no matter how, much you've, how long you've been enduring this suffering, is that you're not enduring it alone. You have a father that cares, a big brother that endured the same thing, and a spirit that hears your prayers and groans beside you. Please stand for our benediction. Our prayer team is going to be available to you. If you want to find them at the end of the service, you can come up here. You can pray with them for whatever your, your heart needs. Uh, they want to be available for you. May you this week, as you endure suffering, may you this week, as you endure the groaning of this universe, as you lift your voice along this painful chorus that stands beside us of pain and suffering and anguish and, and hurt, May you also breathe in hope, hope that does not disappoint for a God who cares deeply about you. May you be filled with God's presence and go in peace.